The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. And so right now, as we get into Acts 15, we're kind of in the middle of the story of the early church and the book of Acts. And literally, um, the church is thriving right now. The church is growing. I want to begin kind of to set up what is going to happen. This is called the Divine Council. They had a uh, basically a, a council in Jerusalem because there are so many Gentiles that are getting saved. Peter started it off by going to this uh, Roman centurion's house named Cornelius, who was a God-feared. He was a Roman who no doubt had been you know, raised with Roman mythology and the Greek gods and goddesses and got stationed there in Israel. And hearing the Jewish perspective that no, there's not gods and goddesses and they're not made of wood and stone and marble, um, but there is one God and he is almighty God, all-knowing God, all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And he's the God who created all things by the power of his word. And this Cornelius guy became a, you know what? They're right. That bears witness With my human spirit, there is a creator, that there is one ultimate supreme being, God. And he became a God-fearer. And then the Lord spoke to Peter because Jesus had given the keys of the kingdom to Peter of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter was the one of all the apostles and all of the disciples who on the day of Pentecost opened the door to the Jews on Pentecost when he preached because the rushing mighty wind, the Holy Spirit manifested his presence, a giant crowd gathered, and then they began speaking, 120 of them, and all these languages, the wonderful works of God, they were like just baptized and filled with the Spirit, and they're worshiping and glorifying God in all these languages, and it gathered a huge crowd. Peter preached, 3,000 Jews got saved, and the church was born. But then, The Lord took Peter and, you know, by the the great story in Acts chapter 10, he's brought to the house of Cornelius, the scoffer, and Peter has a a dream, or a vision rather. Uh, Cornelius has an angel come to him, and so God brings these two together. So Peter preaches about Jesus as the Messiah, and that he was crucified, buried, rose on the third day, and he's preaching basically the gospel, and Cornelius believes, and he invited his whole house to be there, And while they listened to the sermon, before the sermon was done, they were believing and saying yes and nodding their heads to everything Peter was preaching. The Holy Spirit did not wait for Peter to finish preaching, and the Holy Spirit fell and came upon them, and they were saved while they were sitting right there in their seats. So the key to the Gentiles was now open. Then the Lord goes to Saul of Tarsus, you know, breathing fire and arresting people in the church, and he reveals himself from heaven on the road to Damascus, and now Paul and Barnabas, Paul gets saved, and they start going around the Mediterranean, all these countries of ancient Roman Empire, planting church after church after church after church after church after church, 
And while they, they would always start with the Jews, go to the synagogue, hey, the Messiah we've always been waiting for has come. His name is Yeshua of Nazareth. Let us tell you about him. Eyewitnesses from Israel and a, and a vision that Paul had. And it's, the church is exploding. It's literally, it's going wild and crazy. Jerusalem sent Paul and Barnabas. But now all of a sudden, growth brings conflict. Now I wanna set the stage. What we're about to read happened about 20 years after Pentecost. So this is two decades of church planting, of the church growth, uh, and now there's probably many more in each little congregation, a lot more Gentiles than there were Jews. And there, there came a conflict. So here's what I wanna begin in our outline. Why does God allow disputes in the church? <laughs> Whenever a church is starting to do good and it's starting to grow and starting to be blessed, and then all of a sudden disputes come or arguments come or division comes or whatever, why does that happen and what in the world is God doing? So verse one of Acts chapter 15, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. And here's what they were teaching. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, the home church, home base Jerusalem, and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all the things that God had done with them. But, so here's the, you know, fly in the ointment. Everything sounds good, looks good, is growing, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed meaning they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but they are Jewish and they are Orthodox Jews. They're following all the laws and customs and their Pharisees rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So this is uh, a dissension is arising. Everything is being stirred up. And now these legalists, these Pharisees say, hey, 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 wait a second. Not that fast, not that easy. I mean, we, we have been you know, following the law ever since the days of Moses, and there's 613 of them, and it's not easy. And these guys are getting off scot-free. They accept Jesus, and they're all filled with the Spirit, and speaking other languages and having fun, but hey. <laughs> They gotta do what we did. They gotta get circumcised. They gotta follow. They gotta learn the 613 commandments because you know there's 10 commandments, but when you read all the little details, the 10 are divided into 613. And you have to follow them every day for the rest of your life. And they're going, hey, they're not doing any of that. So they came and they brought up this big dissension. So here's what I wanna say to you next in our outline. Why does God allow disputes? God allowed this to happen, and there's good reason. God allows disputes in order to make things perfectly clear. 
That's what happens, and it can happen in a family. All of a sudden, there's controversy. Things are going so well, and then all of a sudden, there's a debate, there's an argument. Even blessings can turn into issues of disputes, disagreements, divisions. What I want you to realize, and I think we'll all basically be able to see and recognize this, do you not know that when that happens, and there may be some of us here tonight that are in that very moment right now, you've got some division going on, divisiveness going on, distraction going on, uh, you, you've got a, a lot of you know, things that are just driving you crazy. Know this, the enemy is right there taking every advantage as he possibly can. Recognize the enemy is the one behind disputes, behind divisions, behind distractions, and all the rest of those things. So the enemy is trying to stop and blunt the powerful move of God. And basically these Pharisees who are religious Orthodox Jews, who yes, we believe that Jesus is Yeshua, the Messiah, the Savior, they believed all the elements of the gospel. But now they go, wait a second, on all these churches you're planting everywhere and, and they're just in immediately? Are any of them circumcised? No. Are any of them following the laws? Do they even know any of the laws? They've never even read the Old Testament. They don't know anything. So they were basically saying, in order for a Gentile to become saved, you must become a Jew. And unless you become a Jew, you're a second-class citizen if you are saved at all. So that was the dispute that arose, and that literally brought Paul and Barnabas back from their missionary journeys. They had to go back to Jerusalem and gather the apostles that were there and have a big church council and discussion about all these things. Before we get and go on into that story, I wanna say this. So we're learning the history and Judaism and the early church and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But I wanna say that you know, from the time of Moses all the way up to the time of Jesus, about 1,500 years, and that was one of the issues they were dealing with 2,000, or, you know, 2000 years ago. But you know the church, we can say, wow, the Jews and legalism and Pharisees, oh man, those, those guys were bad and they were wrong. But how many of you know, by your own personal experience, the church can be just as legalistic as any Pharisee who ever lived? Can I hear an amen on that? In fact, let me ask this. How many of you have been a part of a religious you know, experience, church, background, upbringing, uh, denomination that was too strict or too rules-oriented or too legalistic? Or, how many of you? Any, anybody? Okay, that's a lot. And then people get a, from that legalism, you can get a bitter taste in your mouth and all of a sudden, your whole relationship with God is mixed into the brew of the toxic church and you throw, as it were, the baby out with a wash. You let go of your relationship with God because you got burned by a legalistic church experience. Now let me just say that for me, you know, for instance, because the church, we, we, we may not just have, okay, the, be like Pharisees, but we still have rituals, churches and groups can have rules that are not necessarily actually in the Bible. So I'll just give you a real quick, uh, you know, thing that come, came to my mind this week as I was preparing this. 
When I was, uh, you know, I first got saved, I've shared that before through Billy Graham, and then I started, I was part of a, uh, a Nazarene church, which was a great experience for a junior high, and then I went to uh, Wesleyan Church, actually a great church, Skyline Wesleyan Church, became a Wesleyan, and I'm learning and growing, part of the high school group and everything, and they had a choir, and I was involved in that, and then they were going to have a trip to go across the United States with the choir and a bus, and stay in people's homes, and you sing on a Sunday morning, and you, you know, so I was like, wow, I'm like 16 years old, and, or 17, and I'm like, oh man, I want to do this, I want to go on this, and see all, I've never been across in America, so I go, and while I'm there, I, this is the experience I remember from being, in high, and being there and then afterwards. Now, this was in the you know, 70s, so let's say it's about 1975, six, somewhere in there. And I don't know if you can imagine, I used to have, I was in the 70s, I had long hair, you know, parted right down the middle, like every good 70s guy did and long hair, and you know, I wasn't into the worldly things, but that was, the, that was the culture, that was the deal. And all of a sudden, I'm going through the South, and I won't mention what states, but I, you know, so we came, and I'm in there on a Sunday morning, and I'm looking out, and I'm, I've got people scowling at me, looking at me, and, and then I, you know, we go to our home wherever, and they go, wow, man, dude, Ray, gosh, the people were talking about you. And at first I was like, really, what? Was I singing that good? <laughs> no. no, they were talking about your long hair. I go, really? Yeah, the guy I'm staying with, he said, I don't know how that kid can be saved with all that long hair. You can't imagine what he's doing at night. I'm like, what? He judged me based on my long hair? And he had an attitude and an opinion, and so you know, it kind of it became a thing. But then I got baptized in. Whoa! I was, you know, San Diego. I was born and raised here, so it's not the South, and you know, the South has different deals. But there have been through the church age and different groups traditions, and they can be just as legalistic as any Pharisee. And at times, and I'm going to just generalize, so, so all of a sudden you're in this group and you came because you love God, you want to worship Jesus, you're, you're being, your spiritual hunger is growing and the next thing you know, they're telling you because you're a woman, you can only wear dresses and God forbid you ever wear, you know, a pair of pants and especially at church in the house of God or then they say, you know what, uh, <laughs> You're playing cards. No, you cannot play cards. Oh, I'm playing Uno, Uno. You cry Uno when you have one card. That doesn't matter, all cards are of the devil. You're gonna be betting your house by next Friday if you don't stop that card playing with Uno. You're like, what? And you know, it goes, and then, you, and then there's others even, you can't go to a movie. That is the most wicked thing in the entire world. I wanted to go see The Sound of Music. You know, no! You're opening the door to hell, my brother Ray. So we're laughing, right? But those things are real. They're true. They have stumbled and hamstrung multitudes of people. And I'm just giving a few little examples that are, you know, real and maybe even still here in some places that have robbed people. Now, guess who's behind legalism? Who do you think wants people to get so bitter and so angry because it's hard to follow the rules of the group to be in? 
And if there's somebody not following the rules, you wanna criticize them so that they can be as miserable <laughs> as you are. So who do you think wants to promote jealousy and anger and he would like to have as many people in the church have a bitter experience so one day they go, that's it. Those people, I, don't, I can't stand them and I'm throwing them and my walk with God out the window and off they go back into a whole world of who knows what. But the world doesn't you know, deliver anything new. They're miserable there as well. But what I wanna say is the Lord really wanted to deal with this and he really wanted to nip it in the bud. I wanna be clear. We are not saved because we follow a set of rules. Do you hear me? We are not saved by our good deeds or by our works. We are only saved by placing our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he did for us that we could never do for ourselves on the cross, in his burial, and in his resurrection, we are saved by grace through faith. Amen? So read with me Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is the word of God. Let's read it out loud together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Saved by grace through faith. I want you to look with me now, verses six through 11. So what did they do? So Paul and Barnabas are like, yeah, this is a big deal. We do need to talk about it. We need to settle this right now. And we're going to Jerusalem to do it. So in verse six, it says, now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when they had been much, there had been much dispute, arguing, <laughs> a church, nice way of saying they were arguing, probably loudly. Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren. So I want you to note, Peter did not get up immediately. Peter waited, he sat. So you have this big, you know, everybody's there together. And there's people that have been taking notes about all the Gentiles and their cultural things and all the things they do wrong and they can't wait to fire. And they're just going bam, 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 you know, all of this stuff. What is Peter doing? Does he get up immediately? No. He waits for a while, while they're arguing, while they're disputing. May I say that there's wisdom in that? When somebody is going on a rant, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a friend. You let them go for a little bit, and while they're going, what are you doing? Praying. Dear God, give me wisdom. And note this, if you'll notice with Jesus, sometimes we get caught in every little accusation they make, we wanna to try to defend and give an answer to every little. Jesus did not do that. Sometimes he didn't even answer the issues or the questions that were raised. Why? Because he was always listening to his father. Father, what do you want me to say? You can literally change the whole conversation. You have to be led by the Lord. I believe Peter was watching them argue. They're filling the air with all their stuff. And he's praying, Lord, okay, okay. I'm listening, Lord. Okay, that's what you want me to say. All right, the moment I get a break. And they, you know, there's a little break and Peter stands up and he goes, okay, I got something to say. And everybody, has, you know, he got their attention because he's Peter, he's one of the inner three. Not only a member of the 12, but he's an inner circle of the three, Peter, James, and John. He stands up 
And he says, Peter rose and he said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God uh, chose among us that by my mouth. So he's saying, not even the apostles, not anybody even here chose. He said, by God's choice, he chose me that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, the Jews. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by what? Faith. Not because they performed, not because they memorized or were able to follow the 613 commandments, but the Holy Spirit fell on them and purified their hearts because these Gentiles trusted in the message of the gospel. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Good question that it could only come from kind of an Orthodox Jew himself, Peter, trying to his best to follow the law. He goes, look, he goes, come on, guys, let's be honest. We never followed the law. That's why we got Romans here is because our fathers rebelled against God. And he said he would let us go if we did that. So if we never followed it, why are you going to try to make these guys follow what we have never followed? Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace, say the word grace, grace, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I love this. Peter says four things. Number one, he says, God commanded me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It wasn't a group here. He goes, God told me Peter to preach to the Gentiles. In other words, it's his idea. He's the one that started it. Number two in verse eight, God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles before, while he was still preaching to them. Nobody got circumcised. Nobody went over and started saying, yes, I'm gonna memorize all the 613 commandments. Nobody became a Jew. But the whole, so the Holy Spirit, why didn't the Holy Spirit wait for them to get circumcised? Why didn't the Holy Spirit wait for them to start following the law, learn it before they even start trying to follow it? The Holy Spirit was poured out on them and in them and baptized them in his spirit and filled them with his spirit while they believed there was no performance. He saved them by grace, just like he saved us. Number three, God erased the difference between Jews and Gentiles for salvation. I can save a Jew and I can save a Gentile. And ultimately that was God's desire from the beginning. And fourthly, verse 10, God has removed the burden of the law. He didn't want us to give it and add it to stumble others. In other words, we cannot be saved by our good works, but by faith alone. By faith and trust in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ we are healed, we are forgiven, we are given his spirit, we are given eternal life, we are given relationship with him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen? Now, I do want to say this. There is a difference between performance and obedience. 
There's an extreme version of, oh, look, I'm, you know, we're saved by grace. Yes, by faith. Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean we can go out and live any lifestyle we want, let alone violate the Ten Commandments, which most everyone around the world knows, murder and steal and kill and cheat and you know, envy and all the rest of it. We, it doesn't give us a license to live whatever way we want. What it means is that we are to now, we, we have received grace by faith and it's precious. So now we want to follow the Lord and we really want to obey the Lord, but our obedience is, is not a performance based on following some kind of outward rules, but our obedience is now I have the voice of the spirit within me. I have a father who is my creator, who loves me, and who has given to me his word, and, and really his law and his commandments are the advice and counsel of a father. Look, if you walk this way, this is the way you were made, this is the way you were designed, this is the way that you'll be happy and filled with joy and with love and life and peace, and so stay away from these things and follow these things. Okay, that's relationship. And, and so obedience literally is an evidence that you trust in your father. But what he's wanting to say is, let's let the Holy Spirit bring them that knowledge and that understanding. We'll see that in just a moment of how the apostles said, well, if they don't know anything, how are they ever gonna know right and wrong? They're gonna trust the Holy Spirit, but we'll see that in just a moment. Well, look with me in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, and then all the multitude kept silent. I love that. They were arguing, they were yelling. I can imagine voices raised. When Peter stood up with authority and said, hey, God is the one who chose me, gave it to the Gentiles. He's the one that poured out his Holy Spirit. He was in charge. I didn't give them anything. I didn't save anybody. I didn't give them the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did the whole thing. They just, they couldn't say anything. They were silent. So it says, kept silent, and listen now to Paul and Barnabas, uh, or Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So once Peter got up, they all got silent. Then they still didn't have anything, so Paul and Barnabas get up and they said, and if we can add, we would like to confirm what Peter said everywhere. Paul, I'm a Pharisee, former Pharisee, Barnabas, Orthodox Jew, everywhere we went, God confirmed our message of salvation by the finished work of the Savior Jesus on the cross, burial and resurrection, poured out his spirit. And he confirmed it with signs and with wonders and with miracles. If God is not happy with the message, is he gonna confirm it with signs and wonders and miracles? No. But why did God confirm it with signs and wonders and miracles? Because God was pleased that they were sharing the truth that would set them free. Can I hear an amen on that? So, if you're making notes, there is a difference between performance and obedience. We're all called to be disciples. Everybody say the word disciple. If you're a believer, we're all called to be disciples. And one simple definition of a disciple is this. A disciple is someone who hears the voice of the Lord, the will of the Lord, the direction of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, and then secondly, obeys. 
If you really believe and if you really love and if you really worship and trust and honor him, Lord, tell me how to live and I'm ready to do it. But I'm, I'm doing it from different, it's not that I'm earning my salvation, I'm not working to be a better person or hopefully one day maybe I'll be good enough to be saved. No, I'm saved wholly, completely and trusting in Christ. But now my walk with you is, I love you, I wanna be close to you, I wanna follow you, Daddy, I wanna hear your voice day by day. And Father, know this, whatever your will is, my answer is yes. Now tell me what you want me to do. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. Okay. So Peter's testimony brought them to silence as Paul and Barnabas speak. So we only get one verse about Paul and Barnabas, but we'll hear more from them later, obviously. But verses 13 through 21. And this is where I want to wrap up. The restoration of the tabernacle of David. Beginning in verse 13, we read, and after they had become silent. So Peter silenced them. Paul and Barnabas confirming witness, we echo what Peter said. They're still silent. They can't say anything. Then James answered saying. Now, before we get into what James said, I want to quickly share with you what James we're talking about. This is not... James and John, James the brother of John, the two sons of thunder. This is another James. This James was not among the 12. This James was the brother of Jesus, who did not believe in his brother as the Messiah the entire three and a half years of his ministry. But after his resurrection, Jesus, the Bible says, appeared to James his own brother. And then James became one of the leaders of the church of Jerusalem. I don't know if you know this, but James is called, and by the early church historians, the early church called him James the Just. And he wrote the book of James. And it's the last, you know, right there at the end before the book of Revelation, that James, Jesus' brother. Um, they called him Old Camel Knees because he prayed so long he wore holes in his robe and had calluses on his knees. And what's amazing about that is he was on his knees to Jesus, whom he had not believed in. But then we read in verse 13, and we'll just go through this. So then James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles uh, to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, his words, uh, and, and with his, this, the words of the prophets agree. Underline the word agree. So James is now gonna attach scripture to the testimonies of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas and say what they just said agrees with the word, confirmed by the word, the word of God. Just as it is written, after this, I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity 
are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, stay away from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. And that was kind of the most basic elemental things so that Jews and Gentiles could go to the same church and fellowship culturally together, obviously, and because those things were wrong. But then it says, for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. So here's what I want. I'm going to just say it as simple as I can. But what James came up with is two things. He quoted his scripture, which is all about, oh, he's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David for the Jews. And they loved David because David... He, he brought what's called the tent of David, the tabernacle of David. And he brought the heart of worship. You know, there was the, you know, temple, the tabernacle of Moses and the temple that was later built by Solomon. And it had all of the things and all of the symbology. And, and they had all of the priests that were doing all of these things, many layers and revealing the realities of heaven. But there was something about David for a brief period who was not allowed to build the actual temple. So he just had a tent. But there was something, David, and, and the Bible infers that there was supernatural divine revelation given to David about what the temple was all about. Not just the meaning and application of all the furniture and everything else, but the heart of it, the spirit of it. David got that that tent was very precious to God that it really symbolized how God's presence wanted to be manifest. Do you know what the, ta what a tent, what the tent was made of? Skin of animals who had been killed and sacrificed and shed their blood. And God said, I'm hiding my Shekinah glory inside, wrapped with skins of animals who have been put to death and who have shed blood and died. That's where my glory is gonna be. In other words, all of those animals and all of those sacrifices representing the, the, the tabernacle of David, the tent of David, the skin, was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, not made of stones, but of skin that would die and whose blood would be shed. And God said, you want to know where my glory is? The absolute purity and fire of my Shekinah glory, it's going to come burning through the skin of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. And every time you look at my glory through the skin of the Son of God, the Lamb of God, you will have to see every single time my love for you, that I gave my only begotten Son to be beaten and crucified and to die and shed his blood that I might reveal my glory to you. That's why the tent of David is. So it's not about just lifting up sacrifices every day at the proper hour. It's to David lifting up your hands unto the Lord. It is that God does not just want sacrifice of things. He wants the sacrifice of our lips to worship and praise him. Can I hear an amen on that? And then James ends with this. He goes, yeah, now all those churches that now multitudes, I mean, it's literally, it's gonna flip Rome upside down. 
You know that big mighty Rome with their you know, armies and roads and all that? It's already gonna come crumbling down. You know those little tiny fellowships that are meeting in little synagogues and homes and gatherings and whatever? Those things are gonna be here until the king of kings himself comes. And in every single one of those churches where there's more Gentiles than there are Jews, what are they, saying? What are they teaching from? The Bible, what was the Bible? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So they're teaching Moses. But when they're teaching from the Old Testament Moses, all of the teachers are putting in, this is a shadow of Jesus. This is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. This is why they did, they're they're preaching Jesus from the entire Old Testament. So let's let them learn little by little, grow day by day, they'll get it. Let's not lay a burden on them that they wanna run away from, but let's just give them the basics. God saved them, filled them with his spirit, and let them grow and let the Holy Spirit do it. So it's not religion which is from the outside in, but it's from relationship that comes from the heart and moves its way out. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.